Job chapter 42, if you want to turn there in your Bibles as we tonight conclude our study through the book of Job together. And as we do such, we wrap up a book that has done a great uh, amount of exposing us to the sufferings of humanity and particularly a man who one would think as we look at Job's life that he should be someone who was spared from suffering, that shouldn't have had to deal with any difficulties in his life. Again, by way of just refresher, the Bible tells us right at the beginning of the book of Job that uh, this was a man, the Bible tells us, who was uh, blameless and upright, who feared God, who shunned evil, uh, someone who prayed for and ministered to his family, someone who God had blessed tremendously. And we're told that God really was... Uh, proud of Job. Really, in a sense, we see God bragging about Job, saying that he had no one on earth like him. And that's a pretty hefty comment uh, and a pretty incredible compliment, if you think about coming from the creator of the universe. Uh, But we saw that as God was speaking those things about Job, that Satan kind of capitalized on the situation and the relationship that God had with Job and basically began to propose that the only reason why Job served God so faithfully was because of all the blessings and good things that God had done in Job's life. And basically proposing the fact that the only reason that God was worthy of worship was because God blesses people and does good and kind things in their life. And that the only reason why Job was faithful to God was because of what God did for him, not because Job really loved God or appreciated God. And, and it seems that God, looking at this, took the opportunity to disprove Satan by basically allowing him to have some degree of access in Job's life. And, and really, as God allotted the opportunity for Satan to bring some attack and some spiritual warfare against Job's life, uh, we saw that that came with a great degree of suffering and difficulty in Job's life. And we saw the tremendous loss and hardship that came into Job's life as he lost all of his possessions. He lost all of his uh, status in the community. He lost all 10 of his children. He lost his health. I mean, the degree of suffering that Job went through in a very short period of time and has lasted now for a season of months uh, is quite difficult for us even, I think, really to fathom. I'm not saying that to some degree we all don't go through different aspects of hardship and times of suffering in our lives, but what Job was going through was extremely, extremely difficult. And as his friends came and tried to help him process this, as they began talking and dialoguing, it really didn't help Job's suffering at all. It kind of just added to his misery. And we saw chapter after chapter as they went through in their conversations trying to reason out the purpose for Job's suffering. Was there some secret sin in his life, some unconfessed wrongdoing that Job had not dealt with and they were offering their ideas and input in regards to why Job was suffering and Job and and his friends were dialoguing back and forth until ultimately God finally interjected into the situation and began to speak and as God began to speak he began really to just ask questions to question if somehow Job and his friends felt that they knew as much as God or, or could do a better job than God was doing or somehow had more power to act than God did, which really was a tremendous humbling process as God began to speak and to ask all these questions. And brings us now, as we come to chapter 42, the closure of the book, where Job now, recognizing 
how great God is, and I think to some degree being tremendously humbled, and understand at this point in time, he's not yet been relieved of his sufferings, and he still has no explanation, no reasoning for that, but after God has asked all that he has of Job, we're told in chapter 42 that Job then answered the Lord and said, in light of these things that God has been speaking the last number of chapters, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. So he basically reflects upon the the sovereignty of God and acknowledges here the the power of God, what we call God's omnipotence, the idea is that God's all-powerful. He says, Lord, one thing I have come to know through this process and what you have just spoken to me is that you can do everything. In other words, that there's no limitations for God. Do we have a lot of limitations as people? Absolutely. And a lot of times, that's what makes our sufferings more difficult for us. That's what makes our challenges more hard for us to process is because we always try and reconcile things from the perspective of our own human limitations or human resources. And a lot of times, we fail to take into consideration that doesn't apply with God. Uh, God has no limitation in his understanding. He knows all things. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen next month, a year from now. He's intimately acquainted with all the ways of man, what's in our thoughts, what's going on in our lives. God has no limit to his resources or his power or what he's able to do. And Job has come to this realization of the greatness of God. That's really where this is all taken him to, where he says, I don't know really the reason for my suffering still at this point, but one thing I do know, God, is that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. So God, if you have purposed something, even if you purposed my suffering, because keep in mind, at this point, Job doesn't know that this is satanic warfare. He doesn't know that's why he's going through these hardships. All he knows is God's sovereign. And so God, if you have purposed and allowed me to suffer, then I know that no purpose of what you intend can be withheld from you. He says, verse three, you have asked, who is this? who hides counsel without knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. So he reflects back upon this rebuke. Remember that God gave to Job and to his friends because they were giving counsel that was not right. And even Job's reasonings at this point, because he had kind of, bought into the situation of what was going on with his friends, Job began to stumble himself in regards to really why God was allowing him to suffer like this. Notice Job's conclusion. You really get to the heart of where God's brought him to at this point. He says, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job mentions in verse five, something that had happened through this process. He says, God, up till this point in my life, I had heard a lot about you. I'd heard a lot about your ways. I'd heard what other people had said about you and how you work. And, and he says, God, I've heard a lot about you from others, but now that I've gone through these experiences, And I've had a direct encounter with you myself because through this process, what God gave to Job, and this is where we kind of come to the close of the book now, is is through this whole process, God never gives to Job an explanation. 
He never does. Nowhere in this book, in the Bible, that focuses predominantly on human suffering, and not only human suffering, but why the righteous suffer. Because Job was a righteous man. Again, when we suffer as people because we've done foolish things, well, we kind of almost understand that to a degree, that it's a matter of sowing and reaping, and that's called consequences, right? You make a bad decision, you reap a bad consequence. And, and we can understand why the unrighteous should suffer, or we can understand why if we've done unrighteous things, why we may bring hardship or suffering into our lives. We, we usually don't have a difficulty accepting and understanding that. That seems to make sense. But why someone who's doing what is right should suffer is difficult for us to understand. Why when we find ourselves you know, trying to process the things that we go through when we're faithfully serving the Lord, we're thinking, Lord, I'm trying to do everything that I know to honor you and what's right. Why would you still allow this difficulty to come in my life? Or why would this still you know, be something that I'm experiencing that's so hard? And, and, and God never gives to Job through this whole book to the very end, the last verse, an explanation. But what God does give to Job is he gives to him a revelation a greater revelation of himself. And he begins to indicate to Job, Job, what you really think you need is an explanation, but what you really need is just a greater revelation of myself, of who I am, of my wisdom, of my power, and of my love. And I think this is an important reminder because just like Job, a lot of times we think when we go through things in life that are hard or times we don't understand why things happened, hardships, difficulties, we think that we would just be satisfied if we had an explanation for it. I don't know about you. Maybe that's kind of the way that I tend to think is that if I could just have some explanation for why this happened or why this is going on, then I'd be satisfied. And the reality is that's not necessarily so. Having an explanation isn't necessarily what satisfies. What satisfies us is a greater revelation and a greater experience with God. That's what truly satisfies a person inwardly. And Job gets a greater revelation of God's greatness, of God's wisdom, of God's loving kindness towards him. And here he speaks about how God, at one point in time, he said, I, I heard things about you. But he says, but now my eyes have seen you for myself. Now I have seen who you are for myself. The idea is referring to revelation and having a true personal experience with God. And boy, something radically changes inside of our hearts. It's one thing to hear other people tell stuff about God. And at one point in our life, maybe that's where we were. We heard other Christians tell us about what it meant to have a relationship with God. We heard other people tell us things about God. But boy, there's a major paradigm shift that happens when you go from just hearing things about God to actually seeing and experiencing God firsthand for yourself. Because when that happens... Something radically shifts in our lives. And Job says, God, if there's anything wonderful I've gotten out of this is now I see you with my own eyes for myself. And look what the result of having an encounter with God did in Job's life. Again, keep in mind, he's still suffering at this point. He's still dealing with all the health issues and all the pain, and the problems. But what does he do? He says, seeing your greatness and your glory, God, it makes me abhor myself and it makes me repent in dust and ashes to repent of what to repent of his human pride to repent of his own anger and frustration that he felt inside of himself because he felt justified that god was doing things and not giving him explanations 
and he was kind of questioning the way that maybe God was working to a degree. And look, whenever in the word of God, you see someone have a true encounter with God, that is always the end result, verse six. It always ends up in humiliation in the sense of humbling ourselves before God. When you have a true encounter with God and you see the greatness of God, you recognize the gap between how great God is and how just finite and weak and filthy and defiled we are as people, it makes you abhor yourself. It, it makes you not think more greatly or more highly of yourself. You know, our world wants to tell us what people need is they just need more self-esteem. We got to feed more self-esteem. We have too much self-esteem as people. That's the problem. That's why we're a lot of times the way that we are, what we need is to have a lot lower view of ourselves because what God wants us to realize is what we deeply need is humility. But see, the reality is when you realize how low you are, how depraved you are, how unworthy you are, what does that do? That magnifies the greatness of God, right? That's what magnifies the love of God, that, that God would love someone like me. Knowing everything about me and who I am and how what much of a filthy wretch that I am, you know, think, think of the beautiful hymn that's become so famous, Amazing Grace, right? And, and what does Amazing Grace come down to? And they, amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good guy like me, right? <laughs> that saved a wretch like me. See, see that's, that's someone who's had an encounter with God because then you realize um, not just grace, amazing, amazing grace. And through all this, Job is able to still accept human suffering, health issues, pain, problems, loss. And still he says, but you know what? None of that matters anything. I am still so unworthy of you, God. Even in this situation, I abhor myself. He says, I, I repent of all of my pride, God, and, and my anger I felt towards you. Your greatness, your goodness is so far above me. And verse 7 tells us, and so it was, that after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord then said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, and remember he was the first one who spoke, which is probably why he's addressed first, my wrath, God says, is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So notice God's estimation of that dialogue between Job and his three friends ultimately became the fourth friend who came in at the end there is he rebukes those friends now to show them really what miserable comforters they were. They were not good counselors and they spoke a lot of things about God that misrepresented what God is like and really what God's perspective was on the situation and what God was doing. Because here they're directly rebuked and God says to them, my wrath is aroused against you and your friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So God says what Job has spoken about me has been accurate. What you have spoken about me is completely inaccurate. And God's wrath was aroused against them. Really, he's gonna go on to say, well, look at verse eight. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls Seven rams, again, the, the number seven in the Bible always speaks of completion, seven notes on a scale, seven days in a week. It's a, it's a term of completion, not of perfection, the number seven. So he, God wants complete repentance from them. He wants them to completely acknowledge their error. And he says, I want you to go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt 
offering. Remember, the burnt offering was when they fully consumed on the fire the entire carcass of the animal. It was a picture of complete consecration. You were holding nothing back. And my servant Job, he says, shall pray for you, for I will accept him lest, here's God's warning to them now, lest I deal with you according to your folly. And you never want God to do that. You never want God to deal with you according to your folly. Because, again, he says, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So notice, the primary reason that God was so angry and apparently was about to judge or deal with these friends according to their error and folly was really very singular. It was because they had misrepresented God. And God does not take it lightly when people misrepresent him. And we see this truth throughout the scripture on different occasions. God here says, my wrath, strong term, my wrath is aroused against you and I'm about to severely deal with you because of your folly. And their folly was they had misrepresented God to Job. Again, God does not like when people misrepresent him and misconstrue what he is like or, or misrepresent him in what they speak supposedly on behalf of the Lord. Remember, th- this was the thing that got Moses into a great deal of trouble, if you remember, in the Old Testament. Remember, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, God was doing incredible things through Moses working through him in powerful ways, and he was going to take the children of Israel into the promised land until he had one major folly. We may think, oh my goodness, it's not that major, but what happened? Well, you remember God told Moses on a particular occasion, he told him to strike the rock and water would gush forth on one occasion when the children of Israel were thirsty. He did that. He struck the rock, water came forth. It quenched the thirst of the people of Israel. God took care of them. It was a beautiful picture of how Christ, the rock, would be struck and the issuing forth of the satisfying of the thirst of humanity spiritually. It was a beautiful picture. Paul tells us in the New Testament that rock was a picture of Christ or was Christ. Later on, the children of Israel, imagine, complained about the same thing twice. I'm sure children in your household have never done that, complained about something twice. So later on, they're complaining they're thirsty again. And God says to Moses the second time further down the road, I want you to speak to the rock and it will bring forth drink for the people. Well, Moses, at this point in time, and give the guy a little credit, he had been quite a period of time taking a very difficult congregation on a journey who have been nagging him, harassing him, complaining about this, upset about that, questioning his leadership. And Moses has had it up to about right here. And the people are complaining again. And this time God tells him, speak to the rock. And Moses doesn't speak to the rock. Remember, it says that he lost his temper and he took his staff and he struck the rock again multiple times and said, shall I bring forth drink for you people again? And he beat the rock. And God still brought forth water. God was still kind to his people, even though someone failed in the way they represented him. And thankfully, God takes care of his people, even when people misrepresent him as spiritual leaders and others. And when Moses struck that rock the second time, instead of speaking to it, at that point, God said, Moses, come here, son. We need to have a little conversation. What you have just done 
in misrepresenting me has just caused you to lose the privilege and opportunity to be able to take my people into the promised land. Think about it. Moses spent his whole life working towards that goal. <laughs> his whole life was working towards the goal, bringing him in the promised land. And in one instance, God withdrew that opportunity from him. Why? That's a pretty severe discipline because he misrepresented the Lord. He represented God as being angry with the people. God was not angry with the people. Moses was frustrated and impatient, angry with the people. But as God's representative, he gave the impression to them that God was angry at them, that God wanted to punish them. When the reality is, even more than that, he also sadly ruined a beautiful type of Christ because that rock being a type of Christ, Jesus was struck once for the sin of the world, but now Jesus doesn't need to be repeatedly struck again and again and suffer repeatedly. Hebrews says, all we need to do now is speak and call upon the name of the Lord in faith, and Jesus gives to us what we need for our spiritual thirst and our need. And when Moses, the second time, struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock, he ruined that type and picture of Christ. And God was highly upset with that because he had distorted something that God intended to be a beautiful picture and more than that had misrepresented the nature of God to the people. And he ends up being severely dealt with because of that. Look, I think the story of Moses and here seeing this here is a good reminder to us. Look, we need to not take lightly misrepresenting God. And the reality is, for all of us who claim to be Christians, you remember what the word Christian means? It means to be Christ-like. The idea is, is Christians were first called Christians because they were pictured as little Christs or followers of Christ. It means to be a representative of Jesus Christ. So we all, to a degree, represent Jesus. And sometimes I feel like as Christians, we can get a little sloppy and a little too cavalier forgetting the reality that we represent the Lord. Oh, I'm a Christian. And we tell people I'm a Christian. And then we live in ways that are completely inconsistent with Christianity. And guess what we're doing? We're misrepresenting Jesus Christ. That's not a trivial thing. That's a very, very serious infraction. And we want to remember this. If we're going to claim to be followers of Christ, are we perfect? Of course not. Are we going to err and stumble? Absolutely. And ultimately, we want to point people to Jesus. I understand that. But we should also never trivialize misrepresenting God, whether it's in how we behave or in ways that we speak. You know, well, the Lord told me to say this. You better be really sure the Lord told you to say something before you go representing that you're God's spokesman and saying something to someone here. They were, hey, God's showing us these things. Remember, we're having spiritual revelations. And they were implying to Job that they were the voice of God and that Job should listen to them because they were the voice of God. And all the while, God's standing up in heaven saying, I'm not saying any of that stuff. They're misrepresenting me. So look, on the other side of this, folks, let me just say, you have this, right? You have the word of God. So when people say to you, the Lord told me to tell you this, or they give the impression that, you know, they're sharing something that's from the Lord, maybe it is from the Lord, but you test all things, the Bible says, and hold fast to what's good and make sure it lines up with the word of God and make sure it's consistent with the spirit of God. And don't just automatically assume if somebody's saying something as God's representative or treating you in a particular way that that's the way God feels about the matter, because they can be completely off target. And here, 
grasp. We see that pictured very clearly with Job's friends. I mean, I mean, they were just saying all kinds of things to him. And here God expresses that he was deeply, deeply angry at what they were doing. And he says, look, I am upset with you and I want you to go to Job and he's my servant and he will pray for you. And his prayer for you will be what I will use to turn my wrath away from you and to give you mercy. So verse 9, thankfully, Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, they went and did as the Lord commanded them. So, so at least they humbled themselves. They were humble enough to realize, hey, you know what? We were wrong and we failed. And I imagine, again, maybe I'm speculating, I imagine that I hope some of this, because they were Job's friends, remember? I imagine that they went back to Job and they ate a little humble pie. And they said, you know what, Job? We apologize. We initially were trying to help, but... Um, you know, maybe we got a, a little hyper-spiritual and we thought we were God's voice giving you all the counsel and ideas that we did and, and we misspoke, Job. And please forgive us. And, and we apologize if we hurt and wounded you further in the midst of the hardship you're already going through. And, and they went and did what God commanded. And God told us, Job, that we actually have been wrong in what we have been saying and what you have declared has been right. So it says the Lord accepted Job and verse 10 tells us, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So notice the two sides of this. When they come to Job and they no doubt apologize and they say, Job, would you please pray for us? God said that if you pray for us and we offer this offering, that his wrath will turn away from us and we apologize, would you intercede for us? God said that your prayers of intercession would be accepted and God would have mercy upon us. I have to wonder because Job is just human and the guy's been suffering a lot. If he's thinking, pray for you? The last thing I want to do is pray for you. After all that you put me through, right? I mean, Again, think about the times of people who have hurt you the most or maybe when you were already going through something hard and they just heaped on and made it worse for you that the last thing you want to naturally do is pray for him. But Job shows us godliness here because what does Job do? Job discounts how he feels in his emotions. I have to imagine this, that he discounts how he feels about the situation or even how he feels towards those who had hurt him or maybe offended him, or made his life more difficult, he sets aside his own feelings, and he shows he's a godly man because he does what is righteous to please God rather than just responding to his own feelings in regards to a particular matter or situation. And to me, this is an example of, again, the godliness of Job, where Job says, you know what? If the Lord wants me to pray for you, irregardless of how I feel, I'm going to do what's obedient to the Lord, and it says here that as Job begins to pray for them, notice, it was when, and that's to me interesting, it says, the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. So it was when he started to pray for them and he yielded his own heart to God and submitted to what God wanted in this situation, that when he began to make things right with those who hurt him and wounded him, when he began to pray for his enemies, isn't that what Jesus told us to do? To love our enemies, to pray for those who spitefully use us. That's a New Testament concept as well that Jesus gives to us. It says that when he prayed for his friends, that's when the Lord began to restore back the losses 
of all that he had experienced in the prior months. And not only did God restore, but boy, when God restores, God knows how to restore. God is a God of restoration because it says the Lord restored. Indeed, verse 10, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So notice, God didn't just restore back to Job what he lost. The Bible says that God restored back twice as much. That's called grace. So God doesn't just say, okay, I'll restore back everything you've lost. When God began restoring, God restored not only what Job once had, but he made it even better. He restored it even more great and more better, twice as good as it was originally before all of his hardships had come into his life and all the great losses had happened. So verse 11 says, Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintances before him, they came to him and they ate food with him in his house and they consoled him and and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord had blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep. And if you go back to the early part of the book of Job chapter one, you see that he had 7,000 sheep. Now he has 14,000 sheep. 6,000 camels from 3,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. You say, wait a minute, I thought God restored back to Job twice as much. He started out with seven sons and three daughters. Shouldn't he be getting at this point then, if my math is correct, 14 sons and six daughters? Well, depends on how you look at things. Because Job's seven sons and three daughters that physically died in Job chapter one, they may have physically died, but if people know the Lord and they physically died, Jesus said, though you may die, you still live. You continue to live in heaven. See, Job, Job's possessions were one thing, but Job's children, because they knew the Lord, they were still very much alive. And so when God gave him twice as much, he got back 10 kids on earth and he still had 10 kids waiting in heaven that were alive and there for him. So God did restore twice even with the children. Apparently the first set were in heaven and alive, waiting for Job to one day come. And he receives another 10 children during his time while on earth. And verse 14 says, and he called the name of the first, Gemina, the name of the second, Kezia, and the name of the third, Karaneth Hopuk. And so these names of the children here, the, the different names that are used here, dove, cinnamon, eye paint. I mean, quite interesting names. If you look up what's, uh, again, I don't know if it was in some relation to, uh, the, you know, the way they looked or their temperaments or whatever. But verse 15 tells us this of the daughters in all the land, there were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. Now, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse, the way you look at it. Supposed to be a blessing. I guess beautiful daughters, (laughs) supposed to be a blessing. I don't know. That's that's hard for me to swallow that one. It can be quite challenging having beautiful daughters. I know what that's like. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. Now, we believe that he was around 70 when those events started to happen. So uh, if he lived another 140 years, that would be 210 years that Job ultimately lived. Again, this is the time of the longevity of life. 
uh, before the lifespans began to greatly decrease. And he saw, notice, his children's children and grandchildren up to four generations, and Job died full of days. So I mean, this incredible, beautiful end to the book of Job, as the Bible tells us, verse 12, that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Again, the, the latter days of Job's life became more blessed than the earlier days of his life, but it came on the other side of adversity as he went through those things. And you know, as I think of just the pattern of what God does with Job, is he blesses the latter days of his life more than his beginning. What a fitting reminder that is in some ways of exactly what's going to happen with us, not maybe in relation to this earthly life, but in regards to our eternal destiny. Because the reality is, is our latter days of experience and living in relationship with God are going to be way more blessed than the beginning of these days right now when we know the Lord in the flesh. Right now, we have a relationship with God. We know the Lord in the flesh. But the latter days of this ongoing relationship with the Lord are going to be way more blessed. Because when we're set free from this earthly struggle and our bodies that are failing and all the difficulties of this life and spiritual warfare, our latter days will be so much more blessed as we enter into the presence of the Lord. Now, let me say a couple things in regards to you know, the, the book of Job and some of his experiences here. As I said, the book of Job deals with, really, the age-long problem of pain and suffering in man's life. That we all, to some degree, experience that. And the thing that we want to take notice of is, as I said, early on in the book and all throughout, and I'll say it as we close again here, God never answers why. And that's probably, no doubt, the one thing everybody wants the answer to. Why do we suffer? Why do we have to suffer? Why difficulties? And then even the harder question, why do the righteous suffer? I mean, why? why? And, and, and that why question, it perplexes, and it's something that causes all of us to, to wrestle to some degree. And sometimes we almost become so you know, hyper-focused on wanting a why answer to hardships or difficulties we may go through or maybe some disappointment or letdown that we almost do ourselves a great disservice because we think that we are absolutely entitled to God having to answer why. And so we keep striving and struggling mentally and emotionally and even spiritually to the point where sometimes people stumble in their walk with God. They get bitter against God, even maybe turn away from God because some hardship comes into their life and they can't process why and they feel like that they are entitled to an answer. Well, look, here is the book of Job, a man who God says, there's someone who he did nothing wrong, and I have no one like him on the entire earth. God allows suffering to come into his life, and God never answers why. God never gives him an explanation. Because at the end of the day, though Job may have felt like he needed an explanation to be satisfied, God knew that's really not what man needs to be satisfied. What God knows man needs to be satisfied is a greater revelation of him and look and here's the reality typically going through human hardship is what causes us to become more deeply aware of god what god's like in god's ways i mean think all throughout the word of god how we see that happen so many times 
you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if they were not inside the fiery furnace, they would not have had that revelation of one like the Son of Man being in there with them, keeping them spared and safe from all those things. If Daniel didn't get thrown into the lion's den, he never would have seen the reality of the power of God coming to pass that even in the midst of the lion den, that God was able to intervene and to spare him and to save him. Think about how in the New Testament with the disciples, the things that they saw from time to time, what? When they would go out and Jesus would send them into what? A storm where they would be struggling and it would be hard and they'd be straining at the oars and circumstances felt overwhelming. And then what would they see? They'd see Jesus walking on the water and they would see Jesus say to them, things like, why are you afraid? And then he'd rebuke the wind and the waves and instantly it would all stop and they would go, who is this? That the wind and the waves obey him. And again, how many times in the word of God, whether it's with Job's life or others, we see that it's through human hardship that our eyes many times are shifted from what's temporal to what's eternal. And we see what really matters at those point in times. And a lot of times it's the hardships and difficulties that we go through that help us to have the greater and more valuable revelations of God that we receive as people. So again, in suffering, we want to maintain perspective and realize, as Paul says in Romans 8, he says, I consider that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. So look, are we going to go through hardships from time to time? Yeah. Are we always going to know why we go through those hardships? No. But in the midst of those difficulties, the Bible teaches that through our hardships and our difficulties, those become times that really become like windows for us to see things about God that we never would have seen. Because in the midst of those hardships and difficulties, it's like those are the occasions where God pulls open the curtain. And he lets us see through the window something else about him who he is, his power, his greatness, his love for us, the way he can come through in a given situation. And in hard circumstances, God always ends up having the final word. At the end of the day, the person who has the final word in Job's life wasn't Satan. And it wasn't even Job, right? It was God. And God was using it in good ways in Job's life. Turn with you would to the, the book of James before we conclude this evening, because James gives us just a reminder from the book of Job, from a New Testament perspective of how we ought to value the lessons that are here for us. James chapter 5, we'll conclude with these couple verses that James speaks of, again, as he's talking to people who are going through hard times. He's writing to those dealing with hardships and difficulties. Again, remember the very beginning of the book of James is where James says, in James chapter 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And then he says, but let or allow patience to have its perfect work in you that you may become perfect, that is mature, complete, lacking nothing. So James, as he's writing to people who are suffering and going through hardships, he's addressing that in his book. And then as he comes to chapter five, guess who he picks as a living example to encourage those going through hardships? James chapter five, verse, look at verse eight. We'll start there. He says, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you become condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
Now look at verses 10 and 11, where he brings us to. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The idea is they were doing what was right in the sight of God, but they weren't immune from hardship. Notice, they spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, verse 11, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seeing the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So when you're going through the hardship, maybe it's the health struggle, maybe it's the financial problem, maybe it's a relationship problem that's going on, maybe it's the you know, loss of, of some loved one, maybe some tragedy comes into your life, maybe it's just a real season of of wilderness or difficulty, or you find yourself in a valley, look, whatever that may be. I can't always figure out myself, okay, and how much of this is just natural life in a fallen world? How much of this is spiritual warfare? I don't know if you do that whole process. I mean, is this spiritual warfare? Is this just earth? You know, is, is this, I mean, and look, we may not have the answers to that. What we know is this is that we're not enduring something that other people of God did not. He says, the prophets before you have spoken the name of the Lord, they were an example of suffering. And he says, what did they do? Verse 11, they endured. And he says, what did Job do? You see the perseverance of Job. So when you go through a hard time, what do you do? You just persevere. You just persevere, you keep walking forward, you keep your eyes on the Lord, you keep worshiping the Lord, and know that God's got a good ending. I can't tell you how the ending is going to come to pass. And look, I don't think it's fair to say that we should read the book of Job and automatically want to apply that that's going to be the, the end result for everybody. In other words, the Lord's going to not only restore back, he's going to restore back twice as much as everything that was lost in my life. I don't think that's a promise. That's what God did in Job's life. But I don't think we should instantly just assume, well, God's going to restore back double. So that's not a bad deal. Okay, God, I'll suffer for a while. Give me double. Is that a promise? Okay, take some stuff away, God, then give me double in the end. Double my bank account. You know, double my, that's not the case. The bottom line is we persevere and know that in the end, the Lord is going to have the final word and that the Lord is very compassionate and he's very merciful. And what does Romans 8, 28 say to us, to those of us like Job, a New Testament promise on the other side of Christ? It says in Romans 8, 28, for we know. It doesn't say we hope, we think. It says we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you love God, if you're called according to his purpose, all things all things, all things that happen to you, all things that have happened in your life, all things that may unfold in your life, all things will somehow, because God intends everything for our good in the end, because he's very compassionate, he's very merciful, he will work all those things for the good. You just keep persevering, keep praying, keep worshiping the Lord. And look, even if you don't see something better on this side, I tell you this, the latter end, which is heaven, is going to be way more blessed than anything you experience on this earth. Let's stand. Let's pray.